Alexander Sager, you're the head of the Council of Europe's Cybercrime Division. Now, this is a topic that's really important to us these days. If you go online, there are all sorts of difficulties and traps you might fall into. There's criminals out there waiting for us. What is the Council of Europe doing about it and why did this start? Um, The Council of Europe started to deal with this topic of computer-related crime. Now you would call it cybercrime. Um, about 30 years ago, more than 30, 35 years ago, in the in the in the early mid 1980s, um, and at that time, even at that time, cybercrime was not a new form of crime. This year is actually the 50th anniversary of cybercrime. In 1971, somebody had breakfast and found in the cereal box a whistle. Captain Crunch cereal box. He found a whistle. And that whistle emitted the same signal that you needed to use, that AT&T in the US used to reroute uh, telephone calls, long distance calls. So if you use that whistle, okay, there was a bit more technology involved, you could make long distance calls free of charge. That was the first time of cybercrime that uh, tradition says happened in 1971. So we have 50 years of cybercrime. Uh, but today, of course, cybercrime uh, is, is at a much, diff- much different level. Um, I think every second there are hundreds of attacks against email accounts. Every second. Hundreds of them. There are trillions of attacks a year. So in the nine, early 1980s, uh, the Council of Europe started to look at it from a criminal law perspective. You know, how can we deal with this type of crime, which at that time was at its infancy? And um, there were then some soft law instruments developed in in the mid-80s and then around in the early 1990s, another soft law instrument about what powers can we give to law enforcement to deal with this type of crime, what procedural powers. Could you just tell me what do you mean by a soft law instrument? Um, It was a recommendation. It was a recommendation from the Council of Europe, Committee of Ministers to its member states, uh, on how to how to criminalize illegal acts committed by computer systems, mm-hmm. how to criminalize cybercrime in a way, and um, and then a bit later um, it, the question is okay now how do you obtain the proof the evidence of cybercrime? You needed some powers for police to do that. So there was a second recommendation that followed to deal with procedural powers for law enforcement. Again, cybercrime was important, not that important yet. But it, then in the mid-1990s, it became so important that the Council of Europe decided now we need to turn what was soft law before into a, a binding international agreement. That was the start of what then became the Budapest Convention on Cybercrime. What's really interesting for me is why should we do it in the Council of Europe? Why is the Council of Europe the place to do action on cybercrime? It seems a little bit counterintuitive, given that it's about technology, it's about something which is very specific. Um, There is a, a very specific philosophy of the Council of Europe, namely that as as a state, as a member state of the Council of Europe, you have an obligation to protect individuals against a violation of their rights, not only by states, but also by third parties, by individuals. That includes criminals. So if there is a serious form of crime, if there are forms of crime, governments are obliged to put the means in place to protect individuals against crime. Cybercrime affects the rights of individuals at a massive scale. 
Um, if you have um, sexual violence against children online that affects the rights of thousands and thousands and thousands of children, if you have the private data stolen of millions and millions, of hundreds of millions of, of individuals, it affects their right to private life and, and so on. Um, but it also affects other core values of this organization, um, rule of law, um, justice. Uh, it affects democratic institutions. Think about election interference, affects the core of, of democracies. And that's why the Council of Europe is dealing it with, with it now, why it's among the priorities of this organization, but it's also why historically the Council of Europe started to deal with it from the mid-1990s onwards, mid-1980s so onwards. So it's really rooted in human rights and all the values that the Council of Europe stands for. And another thing I see is that the, the great value the Council of Europe has is that it brings governments together. And obviously cybercrime, cybercriminals don't know any borders. They can work across borders. So this would seem to me a very powerful way of dealing with this. It was quite interesting that I understand that already in the 1980s and 1990s, Non-member states of the Council of Europe were involved in the early work on, on, in, in this field, United States, Canada, um, and, and so forth. And when then the decision was made in the late 1990s to prepare a new international, uh, to prepare the first actually international agreement on cybercrime, what became known as the Budapest Convention on Cybercrime, already at that time, then Canada, Japan, South Africa, United States, uh, were involved in the negotiations because you cannot limit it to a particular country or a particular region. It has to be addressed beyond Europe. So this actually brings together all countries on a stable level to, to work together. And what would you say is the most powerful way? I believe that, for, for instance, the police can work together, investigating authorities can work together. Can you tell me a little about that? You know, Council of Europe, because everything we do rooted in the human rights, the rule of law, a democracy, the starting point, before you can take action as law enforcement, you need to have the laws in place. Because what you do, in, in particular, if you employ, employ um, coercive powers that, that interfere with the rights of individuals, you have to base them on law and, and, and limit them by safeguards. Uh, so the primary Oh, one of the key impacts of the Budapest Convention globally has been how it has shaped and is shaping every day the law of, of, of a large number of countries. We did a survey, we do a survey regularly to check what is the situation globally. And our last survey um, showed that 126 countries around the world had a dom domestic law, criminal law in place in line with the Budapest Convention. So 126 countries have criminalized cybercrime offenses against them by means of computers uh, in line with the Budapest Convention. And more than 150 countries around the world have uh, at least used the Budapest Convention as a source, uh, a guideline or a source of inspiration for the law. It has had a huge impact around the world. So governments working together, but have you included the private sector as well? Yeah, of course. The, 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 the thing is that the evidence that you need for cybercrime, the proof that somebody has committed the crime, the, the evidence to identify an offender is typically held by service providers, by private sector entities. And um, in, the, 
in 2007 and 8, this problem came to the forefront. How do you cooperate with service providers, in particular service providers that may not be in your country physically or legally, but they are still offering a service in, in your country? So in 2007-2008, we had um, an Octopus conference, and in 2008, as a result of the Octopus conference, we had a sort of informal set of guidelines on how law enforcement and internet service providers can cooperate with each other. So these were, of course, non-binding guidelines. Um, they have been reflected in a decision of the Court of Human Rights in, in, in December 2008 as, as a good practice. But um, in, in, in practice, it was clear that at some point we need to go beyond it. We need to put this into a, an agreement to, to negotiate properly what are the conditions for cooperation with the private sector. And this is what we are now doing through this new second additional protocol to the convention. Mm -hmm. Before we talk about the protocol, you have the Octopus Conference, so-called Octopus Conference, very regularly. Why do you call it an Octopus Conference? Oh, that, is, uh, that will take us a long time to explain uh, the reason for that. Uh, we had for the Council of Europe had since the late 1990s something called an octopus program, which was dealing with um, corruption and organized crime to start with, but also the tentacles of organized crime, you know, like an octopus. And at some point, we also started to organize some activities related to cybercrime under that program also as a, as a means to, to bring together different stakeholders, public, private sector, civil society, data protection experts, but also countries from outside the Council of Europe. That's how it started in 2004 to become um, an event focusing on cybercrime. And we have then since then uh, been organizing this um, once a year or once every one and a half or two years. And uh, yes, we soon have another octopus conference coming up. So the tentacles of crime reach out very far, but the tentacles of the Council of Europe are also reaching out far. <laughs> I'm thinking particularly when it comes to um, the new modes of spreading hate speech. Uh, of course, recently we've seen very many difficult uh, examples of how hate speech has, has escalated and has become actually violent in the real world. Now, this was something that happens quite some time ago, and already you've dealt with that. You've looked at how to deal with hate speech and racism online. I believe that's in a protocol. Would you like to tell us about that? The, when, the, when the Budapest Convention on Cybercrime was negotiated, as I said, it was not just member states of the Council of Europe, but also some other states were involved in that. And there was some hesitation by some of the participating states uh, it to include content-related crime, apart from child abuse uh, that was included in the, in, in the convention, but to, uh, to include other content-related crime, including xenophobia and racism. So for many European countries, that had to be done. It had to be criminalized. You had to deal with it. For others to say, we are not sure of how this uh, collides with the freedom of expression, freedom of speech. So that's why this topic of xenophobia and racism was put in the first protocol. So the first protocol to the Convention on Cybercrime covers xenophobia and racism committed via computer systems. And that one was opened for signature in 2003. It has now about 34 parties to it. Uh, we are also promoting this uh, for, for, for countries to join. 
But again, it's a difficult topic and it's a difficult topic also today as governments struggle with uh, societies, not just governments, societies altogether are struggling with hate speech, um, knowing that what some countries consider hate speech, others consider a legitimate criticism of, of governments. Mm -hmm. So really at the forefront of new challenges. And I believe also that a new protocol is coming up, which is also addressing something new. That's gathering evidence by investigators on computers. Would you like to tell us what that's going to be doing? Very important topic. Let's keep in mind one thing. We have been talking so far about cybercrime, you know, offenses against and by means of computers. But give me a single type of crime that would not have evidence on a computer system. I've asked, I keep asking these questions in, in different events and, and at some point uh, I was in India, there was an event and they said, you know, we have six, seven million crimes in our annual crime report for India. And only a few thousand of them are cybercrime. Why would cybercrime be important? We have hundreds of thousands of cases of violence against women. That should be a priority, not cybercrime. And then I said, in how many of these, whatever, several hundred thousand cases of violence against women would the evidence be on a computer system? The evidence that a suspect was at a certain location. The evidence that somebody has groomed a victim before a rape and so forth. And then the police officers in the room said, indeed, 70-80% of all crimes, including cases of violence against women, the evidence is on a computer system, electronic evidence. So that's what we are talking about. We are talking about evidence related to cybercrime, but also any other type of crime. A ransom email in a kidnapping case is electronic evidence, it's not cybercrime. So that's what we are talking about. And this evidence may be all over the place. You may have the offender in the same country, in the same room, the offender and the victim in the same room, the computer, the device in the same room, but the evidence may be stored somewhere in another country. And then there are, of course, multiple other situations where you don't know where the evidence is. The evidence may be in multiple foreign jurisdictions or you don't, or in shifting jurisdictions, maybe in the morning in one country, in the afternoon in another country, you don't know. So we need to find tools to obtain electronic evidence from foreign, multiple, or unknown jurisdictions. And this is what we are trying to, this is one of the topics we're trying to address through this new second additional protocol. And then there is another uh, important uh, scenario that we have to keep in mind, emergency situations, life and death situations. Take the Charlie Hebdo attack some years ago in Paris, where during the attacks, the French authorities needed to already know Who are these offenders? Who are these terrorists? Are they planning something else at the same time? Um, are there conspirators in the neighborhood that, that are planning additional uh, attacks and so on? So they needed very quickly to obtain the evidence, which happened to be on Microsoft accounts in the United States. And so within three hours, they obtained the evidence, they obtained the contents of the mailboxes. Why? Because the United States has powers in place the possibility for service providers to disclose very quickly evidence in emergency situations. And this is also something we now want to include in this protocol. So that shows very clearly how we can cooperate and how we can be successful in cooperation. So Alex Sager, thank you very much for helping us to understand the work on cybercrime done in the Council of Europe. And we wish you much luck with the future. 
Thanks a lot. <laughs>